Welcome to Matinee Screening. I'm Joel. And I'm John. And this past week, uh, we, we looked at some silent movies. We looked, you know, way back into the earliest days of Hollywood to see some of the movies that have been, you know, happened before sound was invented. Um, see kind of, you know, how they held up. Because a lot of these movies that have, you know, made it from back then until now are pretty much considered to be some of the greatest films of all time uh, with the greatest actors of all time in them. Uh, so what we, what we took a look at was uh, Gold Rush with Charlie Chaplin, The General with Buster Keaton, and the recent film, The Artist, which is an Oscar nomination this year. And we'll save that one till the end, but we're going to start talking about the, the earliest silent films. Yeah, well, we're going to go ahead and start off with the gold rush. And um, I, I hadn't seen this Charlie Chaplin movie. I had seen a couple of others. Um, and City Lights is probably one of my favorite movies of all time. And, I mean, this is another one of, you know, just a, a really great piece yeah. of filmmaking. Um, it, 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 it's, it just makes you realize what a kind of genius Chaplin was with his ability to you know, convey so many different emotions and kind of guide the audience without using not only any words, but no sound effects. And, you know, he had had to write the music all himself. And he also ended up, I mean, when this was played in the 20s, he had to rely on a house band to to play the sound. So I thought it was really, really great. What did you think of it? Yeah, um, this is a movie, this this is my favorite Charlie Chaplin movie. Um, but a lot of that is because it was the first one I ever saw. And I, I saw this movie like when I was maybe four the first time around. And I remember, I remember my parents had gotten it on VHS and they were going to, we were going to watch it and it was an old movie and there was no sound. And I thought that's going to be the most boring movie ever. I, I hate that idea. And, um, so my mom said, if we can watch the whole movie and I don't laugh at once, She'll give me 50 cents, which, you know, to me at the time, I was like, oh, I'm going to retire young. 50 (laughs) cents. Yeah. But so I sat there and I was I was so determined. I'm not going to laugh once at this movie. And the first time, like maybe a full minute into this movie, Charlie Chaplin leans on the snow and falls down. And I lost it. It was the funniest thing. And he he just he pulled off this fall so well. And um there's there's just a bunch of scenes. There's a scene where he's trying to leave the cabin. Yeah, and he can't. probably my favorite scene. That Absolutely, was my favorite so scene. funny. I like even this time I lost it watching it. I did too. I mean, I was watching it in the morning and just sitting out on my couch, just cackling because like it makes you feel, you know, kind of. I know it's a cliched phrase, but it does make you feel kind of like a kid again. Like you're just sitting there laughing at a movie and. Um, I don't know. It's how I felt when I watched. This is slightly different, but when I watched the Three Stooges with my dad when I was like seven or eight years old. Yeah. Um, and just it had that same kind of laughter where you're laughing at somebody hurt themselves, but it's not like a jackass kind of thing or even some kind of stupid physical humor. Like it was just. It's not. It's not a YouTube video of humor. No. It's you know. It's it still kind of feels like there's some elegant and art in it. Yeah, it, even absolutely. though it's you know really physical comedy, and Chaplin, the movies I've seen that he does is, uh, I mean, he's let's say famous or infamous for his his love of women, but I love the romance in his movies because they're very 
kind of genuine in a way. Yeah. Um, because, I don't know, he kind of plays most of the same character, but... Yeah. Well... You really buy the, the, the romance, even though you can't hear anything that they're saying. There's a thing, there's a thing with Chaplin movies, since he does, you know, play pretty much the same character in every movie and the same, you know, costume and the same look. There's part of this thing where... If you've watched a lot of Chaplin and you haven't watched it for a while, you start to kind of mix up the movies. And so they'll be like, I remember that scene where he ate a shoe, and that was really funny, but I don't remember what movie it was. Or I remember where he's roller skating backwards and almost falling off of that cliff, and that was really funny, but I don't remember what movie it is. So he has these really kind of iconic segments, but at the same time, yeah, the movies do tell really sweet stories um and they're the characters feel very real yeah so um i mean it, it was it was a nice change of pace because i think that we both appreciate really good writing and 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 not to say that there isn't writing in these kind of movies because you have you know, you have the no yeah i've, I've said before the story that, but yeah i've said before dialogue is my favorite part of a movie that's why you still like Kevin Smith movies. Well, I, I I like dialogue and I like conversation, but that's not to say that these, you know, I don't like these movies. These are great movies to this day. And that, that's part of the thing is they, they hold up. And to imagine, you know, since 1925, how many people have laughed at this one scene. I mean, this movie was made 87 years ago. Yeah. Like, that's what anything else that was made 87 years ago, aside from maybe music and some art that holds up in the same way it did when it first came out. Like, I, I imagine my reaction was probably exactly the same as the people who were paying a nickel to see this at the local theater yeah. in the 1920s. So, Well, that's uh, the yeah. thing is, old movies, it's so easy to say, you know, I appreciated that movie, and I understand, it, I understand the value of that movie and why it's an important movie. But and this, sometimes movies are like that. Yeah, but these just there's no having to appreciate it from a cultural standpoint. The, the enjoyment I mean, is was, there so soundly. And it was also, and this also applied very much to the general. The next movie we're going to talk about, but like you're talking about IMAX cameras and, and the red camera and how definition and and the ability to get a clearer and clearer image with you know more and more variations on focus and everything but this was shot where you can barely make out outlines in black and white and it told a story so much better than these modern day cameras in which you can capture every little detail and that's something that i i never i felt like i was watching a black and white movie even though i obviously was because i was just so invested in the story and and the character that's the thing is um the i i almost there are there are times where i feel like i've forgotten that it is a silent film that well that I've forgotten that I'm not listening to things. Uh, the music just works so well with the movie. There was a re-release of this movie in I think 1942, and all the written words, all the panels with the dialogue were removed, and voiceover was put in place. And so they weren't trying to like lip sync or anything, but they did have a narrator who you know, set up the movie through narration and it, it didn't work. The, the words that were added in pulled me out of the movie far more than the absence of words 
did in the original, I guess, cut of this movie. Yeah, I didn't really expect to be as few, you know, cards as there were. Like, you can, even if you're not lip reading, I mean, you can for a couple of them, but a lot of times you just kind of knew by their actions and the direction the story was going, like, what they were saying. So, like, the use of cards I thought was really well done because you didn't really need them a lot of the time. You kind of followed the story anyway, and it just kind of made you think about how kind of unnecessary a lot of dialogue is in, in a lot of films. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there is a scene in this movie, and I guess it might be kind of the first instance of the got stood up on a date kind of scene. Yeah. And it's, it's a scene where like you can see, oh, every romantic comedy where the girl's sitting at the table and the candles have burned really low and the waiter goes, can I borrow this chair? Because those people aren't going to die alone and they need this chair. And so, and this is like... And it just looks sad with two chairs. <laughs> yes. And this, this was, you know, a similar scene and it was, it was more heartbreaking than any other version of this scene that I think I've ever seen. Uh, yeah, I it's agree. It's a, also, like... If you look down the credits for this movie, it was directed by Charlie Chaplin, produced by Charlie Chaplin, written by Charlie Chaplin, starring Charlie Chaplin, music by Charlie Chaplin, <laughs> and editing by Charlie Chaplin. Like, yeah. you just don't see that anymore. Even if you have somebody who works, like, considered our tours, like, the like Coen Brothers or Kevin Smith or Quentin Tarantino, like, they're not doing that. Yeah, they're not. <laughs> and even... these, like, it really was, is like, this was his movie, and he had a couple people help him out with it, but it was really this guy doing it all on his own, which I thought you can really tell because there wasn't any sort of editing. He he made the movie he wanted to make. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's, there's talk about how he, you know, the, the decisions that he made were such very personal decisions. Uh, he had a relationship with the woman that is the female lead in this movie. And there's, you know, a, kissing scene towards the end and the reason it was such a focus on that and the kiss ran so long on film is because of how he felt at the time about the woman when he was you know making the movie and so it's kind of nice to know that this movie every creative decision made in this movie was made for creative reasons uh was made on you know the passion of the creators yeah so I, I I really appreciated seeing this movie. I still would say City Lights is my my favorite. Um, I can I mean I can understand that the the whole reason I think this is my favorite is because I've, it was my first introduction to. But and City Lights was something I saw in college actually. For like that was the first Chaplin movie I saw, and it was just like I wasn't I was expecting just to watch it and and almost was like a homework assignment. Appreciate it, yeah. Yeah, and the, I I was in my dorm room, and people were like, "Are you okay?" I'm like, "Yeah, it was. I loved it." <laughs> and so, yeah, so I you know I recommend it wholeheartedly. I don't get I don't guess I recommend it more than other Chaplin movies, but just as much. It's you know you had to, we had to pick a Chaplin movie, yeah, to watch, and this is as good as one as any. Yeah, I, I recommend his entire career pretty much. So. All right, now I guess we're going to move on to a movie that came out just a year later, which is interesting. These two movies came out in such close proximity to each other, and yeah. that was The General. What did you think of this one, Joe? Um, the General is, you know, for every bit that 
Gold Rush is a Charlie Chaplin movie. The General is a Buster Keaton movie. And it's, you know, one of the ones that you hear put by his name all the time. Um, it's one where, you know, for many of the same reasons, I really enjoyed it. I thought that he did a really good job creating a story and conveying a character without using any uh, sound. It's it's also a thing where he's very he's a very different actor than Charlie Chaplin. These guys get compared together a lot because they were both silent film comedy stars. Right. But he's not doing the same stuff. He's not doing lots of pratfalls and, you know, slips and stuff. He he has a much more stoic face, I suppose is the way I would say it. But it seems a little more like not that what Chaplin did wasn't calculated, but it it, it his was a little more almost kind of like a rehearsed dance in a way that Chaplin's wasn't. Like Chaplin's is kind of chaotic and he's running all over the place and that's what makes it funny. With Buster Keaton, I got the impression that it was more... Well, Buster Keaton seems to be, you know, his character at least is probably the most driven character in this movie. You know, he's the one who has this goal and this, you know, passion to fulfill this goal and he's very straight-minded and focused on it, and it's kind of this crazy world that's around him that keeps getting in the way. Uh, the, the other characters in that movie, you know, were as much a part of the comedic bits as he was. The soldiers that on, you know, the extras were in many ways kind of the setups to the punchlines in the movie. Yeah. I mean, it was... Again, it, it's easy to compare the the to compare Chaplin and, and Keaton, but I, I think it's kind of unfair to just because they worked in the same medium and were around at the same time. We wouldn't compare a lot of, you know. Yeah, I mean, pick two people who are working today, and say just because these two people have made action movies at some point that you need to decide which one you like better. So, no, I agree. I uh for this movie I really kind of liked the story was pretty much I mean it's kind of bookend I guess by these two chase sequences and they're very slow long drawn out chase sequences you know they're not high speed car chases but they're they're these two train chases where one's mm-hmm. with Buster Keaton chasing down this train and the other one is this train chasing down Buster Keaton and so I liked that it was Kind of the same chase twice, but with very different stakes and a different setup for both ones. Yeah. I also think that it's interesting. I mean, this is just one of those cultural differences, but um, can you imagine a movie being made now about uh, the hero fighting for the Confederacy? Not without serious, you know undertones of he's fighting for the pride of the South, but definitely not for slavery because he's morally <laughs> not opposed against to the black people. Yeah. Like he's, you know where I, I could see it because, well, for one thing, this was a, based on a true story. Uh, there was, you know, a, a general train and the South or the gen- people from the North captured it and people from the South went and got it back. So, it, it was based on a true story, but it's very kind of 
nonchalant about the fact that, yeah, the hero, the person you're cheering for in this movie is a Southern sympathizer and desperately wants to be in the Confederate Army, and the people who you're cheering against are fighting for the Union, you know, and... The people who won. Yeah, the generals, or the, the Union generals are presented very much as the bad guys. They have schemes, and they have, you know, they, they, they're plotting to basically, you know, fight unfairly, and, you know, they kidnap people. They're, they, they use pretty much bad guy movie tactics. And so, and I just thought that was interesting, like, because there were a couple of movies like that back in the 20s, like, we shan't talk much about Birth of a Nation, but regardless of what you think about it, it's considered one of the greatest movies of all time, and it was about the KKK, and you know, like, Yeah. Um, um, I did not feel as uncomfortable with this movie as I did watching the KKK <laughs> uh, film. Really, Joel? Well, uh. the thing is, uh, in college, we watched... Uh, Birth of a Nation, several times, I took three classes all in the same semester that showed Birth of a Nation. And so, going into it, I thought, well, maybe it'll be like watching Ocean's Eleven, where, you know, the the good guys are robbers, and they're really the bad guys, but for this movie, they're the good guys, and you kind of just put up with that. And then you're like, no. oh, oh no, that's not how it turns out at all. That's, oh, that's not the feeling racist. I'm getting while watching this movie. Yeah, um, um, it it, it was, it was another movie that I really loved and and I found myself, I didn't, I didn't laugh as much in this one as I did during, during Gold Wars, but again, I just found myself laughing and, and I think the great thing is I didn't think, I mean, I know I was watching a sound movie, but I wasn't thinking about it while I was watching it. It's sort of like it, when you read a really great book, it, you remember it almost as a movie playing in your head. Right, yeah. Um, I had that kind of same feeling with both of these movies. There, there's, there was never a moment in these movies where whenever the title cards came up, I, you know, you never thought, oh, I have to read now. It just, it kind of happens naturally because you're invested in the story. Exactly. And, and I mean, it, it was something that I couldn't do other stuff while I was watching either of these movies, but I, I, I certainly was glad that it was something that I could spend a lot of time focusing on. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So before we, I guess, go into the artist, we're just going to kind of talk a little bit about the silent film genre in general, because I think, I think it is a genre. It's not just something where they made silent movies before they could make sound movies. So now, now sound is just an added thing to it. But, Silent movies are a different form of movie than other movies, I think. Yeah, and I mean, you look at Pixar, the two of their best movies with Wally and, and Up. Up wasn't a silent movie, but they began the, the movie with, with pretty much a silent film. A silent um, segment, at least, yeah. Yeah, and it was it really showed that like you don't really have to use words in order to, to convey... And in these, those two cases a great love story. You can do it just with looks and actions. And, um, you also looked at, there's a lot of, I've noticed recently that 1929 might be the most filmed year in, in (laughs) film history because the, the transition to sound was such a kind of monumental thing that, um, it's been the subject of a lot, a lot of movies. Yeah. Um, 
and I find that really interesting. Uh, the thing with, you know, you brought up Wally, and yeah, Wally, the, we, we've tracked it before, and the first human appears in that movie at something like 48 minutes into this okay. movie. Except for Fred Willard. Yeah. And Wally, you know, talks, but his talks are really, you know, sound effects. He talks in the same way my my cat talks. Yeah, you you can infer what these sound effects mean more than, you know, words. But even more so than the story, and Wally does convey an amazing love story without words, but there are just extended sequences where Wally's, you know, walking around on Earth and, you know, looking at stuff and picking stuff up and I feel like I could watch that for a solid 90 minutes and be thoroughly entertained the whole time because they capture how how a silent movie entertains you through the visuals no and it's it's and just this this year this is something we'll talk about a little bit more with the artists but um it's been a very very nostalgic year with movies um look at Hugo that's about silent movie era in the 20s um even even earlier uh with the very very first movies um midnight in paris is about the 20s um you have the artists which we'll talk about and it's just a it's a i don't know what it is about this year but um there's certainly an increased appreciation for this time period especially this filmmaking period yeah um when you brought up midnight in paris it made me think I don't know if you've seen Woody Allen's movie Sleeper, and if no. not, we're going to be doing that in a future podcast, I guarantee it. But Sleeper was, it's a movie about Woody Allen going to the future, and the original pitch for the movie was nobody was allowed to talk in the future, and so that was basically because Woody Allen wanted to make a silent movie, and uh, it ended up not being that because you know Woody Allen's very well known for his dialogue and his voice. And so that was kind of critical uh, to put in a Woody Allen movie for the studios. But there are several sequences that are shot like a, like a silent movie where, you know, this old kind of 1920s music gears up and, you know, he's, you know, running around and there's no words for, you know, a good 10, 15 minutes, but it feels like a Charlie Chaplin movie or, you know, another slapstick silent bit. And I guess those, uh, those Charlie Chaplin kind of shorts that you might've seen in a, you know, in a film school setting where the story isn't that important, but it's still Charlie Chaplin getting into shenanigans trouble. And (laughs) it was a lot like that. And it was another thing where, you know, the, the importance of the visuals. And I don't think, a silent movie, you know, scoffs at dialogue and puts down dialogue because, because, you know, Woody Allen, I think, you know, puts a lot of stock in dialogue and values his dialogue. And the same for Mel Brooks, who's also made a silent movie more recently than the 1920s. And he is kind of big on dialogue. So I don't think silent movies put down dialogue, but they bring up, the what you can do with visuals and i don't think that it's a limitation in a way like i think that um a lot of people see the 1930s as sort of like these limitations being taken off of movies yeah um and i don't think it necessarily is i think that we've gained a lot through dialogue um but i think that we lost a little bit as well when it went away because people didn't have to try as hard 
Um, I remember Andrew Stanton was talking about on an interview I heard of them and just how the audience doesn't have to work as hard to understand what's going on and something gets a little bit lost in that when you don't have to exert some effort to get invested in the movie. And um, I don't, I'm not trying to be some sort of hipster saying get rid of all the all the sound <laughs> in movies because I think that they'd be worse. But right. um, I don't feel as though I'm watching a handicapped movie when I'm watching The General or, or uh, any other Chaplin movie. Yeah, exactly. It's It's a movie that does that still has merit and still should be watched i think it's you know i think we're getting very close to jumping on soapboxes and tirades for the glory of film preservation here (laughs) but you can do that if you want but there you know there there's a reason why these movies still exist and still should exist and that's because for the you know tens of thousands of movies that have been made between then and now from big budget stuff to tiny little independent stuff. These movies are still movies where you can hand them down to the That's how I learned about Chaplin was, you know, my dad found a VHS and was like, you need to see this. This is, it's really kind of important that you know this and, and you're at least aware of its existence. And I think that's important. Agreed. So, do you want to move on to talk about the most recent addition to the silent film catalog um, in The Artist? Now, I I watched this movie a couple of weeks ago when it finally came to where I am, and absolutely loved it. I, it's one. Of, the more I think about it, the more it's moving up one of my best films of the year. Yeah. Uh, what do you think of it? <sighs> okay. Oh no. The art. Okay. The Artist is a movie I liked, and I liked oh, it a lot. Oh. But I don't think I liked it as much as everybody else, and yeah, that's going to make though. me sound like I didn't like it. Yeah, and and you know you know that category of movie that I'm talking about where the wrestler. I think we're calling it the wrestler category, <laughs> where you where you like it enough, but every time you get in a conversation with it, you have to be the guy to point <laughs> out all the things you didn't like about it because everybody else has already pointed out the good things about it. Okay, well, to point out the things you didn't like about it, so I can tell you why you're wrong. Okay, well. I did. I wasn't crazy about the girl in the movie, oh. and and here's why. I think that a, a lot of times in silent movies, the actors, you know, are more expressive and you know bigger gestures, and they actually mention that in the artist that there's these you know in silent movies there's grand gestures and giant facial expressions, but I think part of that part of the reason that existed in silent movies was because silent movies were very early on and people didn't know how to act in movies yet. They knew how to act on stage and on stage you're bigger and expressive because if you do tiny, subtle little movements that doesn't read on the stage. So that's the kind of acting that transitioned into movies. Other. So your criticism is, is that she was too, too nuanced in her performance Yes, because everybody else in that movie didn't feel like that. Like I don't. But everybody else in that movie was the part of the silent film generation. The whole point of her character was is that she was a different kind of actress that worked in the you know in the kind of movies that involve sound, and she was speaking, and she didn't have any success when it was a silent film era because she didn't stand out in the same way that. Um, like what's George Valentine? Well, well did. no, no, no. I, I, I think you're, you're missing my point. I think 
John Goodman had little tiny like quirks, and the main guy had little tiny things that are acting techniques that developed over time because they're still readable on film. He he was a much more subtle character. I think the actress, whose name I don't remember, but early on in French. the movie, it kind of felt like, oh, I'm in a silent movie, and in silent movies, people make big faces and use their hands a lot. So that's how I'm conveying my feelings in this movie. And I don't think other people did that. She did that a couple of times very early on that it really felt like, oh, she's doing that because she's in a silent movie. I don't know. I, I And then again, I, it didn't it didn't kill the movie for me. You know, and it's a thing where, you know, we we can talk about how great a movie this was because I do think it sang the praises of a lost form of storytelling. I do think that it captured silent filming films real well. I really liked the on the acting scale, I really liked how the actors in you know portrayed their characters in the real world and how when they were in movies and on the screen, they acted a little bit bigger because that's how 1920s movies look. So it was a silent movie without being a movie that emulated the 1920s. I really liked the sequence where sound starts to creep into his life, the dream sequence. Yeah. I really did like that sequence. I thought that was very impressive. But I don't... Just as a story, this story did not capture me like other movies do. And just other... Not other silent movies, but just other movies in general. I mean, I don't know. I mean, that's obviously not something that you can be right or wrong about. Um, I thought that it did a really good job. I've always been kind of interested in, in 1950, or 1920s Hollywood and like really old Hollywood when people first started becoming rich yeah. off motion pictures. Um, I thought that even though um, I can't, I'm not even going to try to pronounce the, the main actor's name, um, I thought that he did a really great job of, of spinning into a very deep depression and making that very believable, but without kind of losing that kind of 1920s pantomime about his acting. Yeah. Like he always still was very big and he didn't kind of go into a modern day rendition of, of just a person being quiet and going into a deep, dark depression that was still very big and very kind of reminiscent of the times. Um, this this wasn't as happy go lucky as maybe a lot of movies from that era were. I thought that um, well, it did go. There's there's a few things because it's a movie that you know came out in 2011. The censor board is different, so there's a moment very early on where a person gives another person the finger, and I was like, oh, they can't do that in silent movies. That's <laughs> that's not acceptable. When it's like, you know, of course... Chad Kahuva might get upset. <laughs> that's something that happens all the time in <laughs> movies that come out today, but it, it did strike me as very jarring. It's like, oh, oh my. How <laughs> dare she? Heavens to mercy. Um, I love James Cromwell in this movie, too, um, as the the chauffeur of, of the main character and John Goodman. And the first couple times you see them, you're like, Oh, those are those two guys. But then they, they, they melt very seamlessly in, into the story. Um, but I thought that, I don't know. 
the, the I, people, the people I really liked. And again, I, I think my biggest complaint is the story felt kind of, kind of done. I mean, you, you agree that like for the first 20 minutes of this movie, you're thinking, oh, they're doing a shot for shot remake of Singing in the Rain almost. A little bit. And then, I you know, feel it, a little bit. <laughs> and then it turns around and you're like, oh, wait a minute, they're actually doing A Star is Born. So it's like they kind of changed their minds on the movie they were ripping off halfway through. But they weren't ripping it off. Not ripping off, but paying some serious homage to. Okay, well, we could, I mean. And that's not a bad thing necessarily, but it's just, it's a thing where. The, the story did not grip me. I, I kind of knew what all the beats of the story were going to be. I mean, but name a movie that came out in that era where you didn't know what all the beats of the story were going to be. Think about Singing in the Rain. You, you know what's going to happen from scene to scene to scene in Singing in the Rain. You don't really watch it for that. You watch the story's not the great. best part of Singing in the Rain, though. Well, right. This, the story's not the best part of the artist. I think that a lot of it's the novelty of, of, of a movie like this being made in 2011 um but i didn't mind the predictable story i kind of knew that it would be predictable and i was fine with that it's like when i watch a kid's movie they're not gonna kill the cute penguin that's saving the world you know it's not gonna happen but you still get excited when he you know well so you're telling me that the reason that this movie should be an oscar nominee is because it successfully emulates a genre that we don't get to see anymore. Yes, like I mean, Grindhouse I did. No, not like <laughs> Grindhouse did, because those were good movies. That's like saying we don't get to have spam anymore. Maybe we should make spam in 2011, and it'll win a James Beard Award for Best Chef. And that's what I'm saying. If you Grindhouse emulates a bad genre and it's still bad in 2011 the artist emulates a good genre in 2011 and therefore it's a good movie so they both do the same thing fairly effectively just grindhouse chose to bring back something nobody wanted to see that's a debate i'm sure we'll get into in another podcast so get ready listeners because we'll argue about grindhouse about every episode my my point is i i think it did a wonderful job doing that. And I'm glad it did because I I think there is merit in legitimately making a silent movie again. And it, you know, those stories where people were demanding refunds because there was no dialogue in the movie, like those really irritated me because I I think the movie does a good job of validating (coughs) the silent movie as a worthwhile thing. No, it absolutely I, does. I, and, but I don't know. I, I just I don't feel like that gives you Oscar automatic. Okay, well, I mean that's the Oscars automatic. I mean Christopher Plummer doesn't deserve the best actor okay, statue he's going to get. Yeah, but he's, he's he, going to the role is he, getting it instead of his acting ability. The role and the fact that he's eighty and he might not do it again. Right. I mean, like that's why Christopher Plummer's going to win an Oscar this year, which. Hating for for plumber, but like that's why he he could have his performance was fairly you know irrelevant at that point because of the 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 role he was playing. And I agree with you that people were like, oh, it's French, it's about nineteen twenties Hollywood, it's silent, and it's coming out in a fairly weak year of movies anyway. So I mean, 
I think that you can look at it as an Oscar nominee however you want. But um, I still think that it it made me feel like I was watching a 1920s movie in a way, but I also was very aware that I was watching a modern movie. I and w- I think that it worked well with that dynamic. I will say this, um, and I guess this is more interesting uh, interesting consideration than an actual point that I want to make, but the argument that I think the movie's making, and fairly well, is that silent movie is a genre. It's what we talked about earlier, that being a silent movie is a genre choice more than, a, you know just a candy cap that movies had at one point that we should never go to again. They sort of like a musical in a way. Like, I mean, you have a lot of different variations within a musical. You have serious, you have romantic, you have funny. Um, but I would still say that you probably classify musical as a, as a genre. Right. But, um, and I agree with you that silent films are a, a genre in and of themselves, as opposed to sort of like what we did until we figured out yeah. how to put sound in a movie. It's an interesting thing right now when kind of 3D movies are the big thing and, you know, kind of the argument or one of the kind of prevailing arguments for 3D is we used to not be able to make movies with sound. Now we do. So all movies have sound. We used to not make 3D movies. Now we can. All movies should be in 3D. And a lot of us, especially the people who, you know, are opposed to 3D in in some ways, I feel as though people are going to look back at us on 50 years and are going to see us the same way that they saw the star of this movie where you're like, sound's coming, just get on board, and, and people are kind of desperately clinging on to what they know as opposed to getting on wholeheartedly with with what's fairly obviously the way of the future. So I definitely think that we're in a in a, a steer, uh, period of flux with I mean, we, we are in a, we are in a in a time frame where, because... I mean, because 3D's been around since the 80s, but now you have Steven Spielberg making 3D movies and Martin Scorsese making 3D movies. Right, so. and people saying that they're only going to make 3D movies from here on out. So it's just going to... But I do... And I'm not sure if that's why we had so many movies about this time period in this year, but um, it, it I do fear that people in 50 years are going to look back on... on this time period in the same way we look back on that time period. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. So, well, I think that we have successfully discussed as much as we can about silent movies. So now we're going to move on to our homework assignments for next week. And we're going in a much, much different direction. So why don't you explain what we're going for, Joe? Um, for those listening in real time, uh, right now it's February, which for the most part means Valentine's Day. Uh, you know, there's kind of one Groundhog Day movie out there, and we needed more than one for a homework assignment. So we're going. <laughs> and with nobody's the... ever gonna make a broad. Uh, nobody's ever gonna make a better Groundhog movie. So I'm yeah, <laughs> yeah. You made the best Groundhog Day movie you can make. Hit <laughs> <laughs> so. it out of the park on your first at bat, and then what else are you gonna do the rest of the game? Exactly. So we're gonna be doing. Uh, Romantic movies, Valentine's Day movies. The first one we're going to do is When Harry Met Sally, which is a movie that's kind of a pillar of the genre, but it's one that I've never seen. It's it's kind of one of those like embarrassing movies that you don't want to admit to not having seen 
because you never got around to it. So it's one I'm going to definitely get to see this week. Another one we're going to do is from the genre we're calling those terrible teen 90s movie genre. Uh, which, you know, we're all kind of about high school romance lasts forever. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to be doing Drive Me Crazy, starring Sabrina's Melissa Joan Hart. So, yeah, looking forward to that one. No, Sabrina's Melissa Joan Hart and Entourage's Adrian Grenier with <laughs> He Was Very Pretty, which is all you could ever say about him. He was a very pretty man. Um, and then we're going to move on to in the polar opposite of what this was, in which we focused on no dialogue. We're going to move on to The American President, which is probably one of my favorite scripts of all time, written by Aaron Sorkin. Yeah, Aaron Sorkin uh, in there. And so we're going to continue our politics theme, I guess, a little bit. Because it's President's a, Day. Oh, wow. That is not something I thought of. But yes, it is President's Day. Yeah. And we get to watch... The American uh, President. The President being romantic, which who, yeah. who can say no to that. It's fulfilling all the genre needs. So, so tune in next week where we will have a significantly more lovey... A, a podcast all about love. And who doesn't like that? That's going to be nice. (laughs) Well, thank you for joining us on this week's episode, and we will see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye.